Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Higher education institutions across the country are contending with significant headwinds. However, with a shared sense of purpose, a creative spirit, and sustained focus, Presbyterian College can emerge stronger than ever and build a tremendous foundation for the next 140 years. That was part of the inauguration speech that Matthew Vandenberg gave at Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina in fall 2021. His vision for Presbyterian is slowly taking shape, but it has come with both highs and lows. Taking office in February, 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, I wanted to ask Matt to take us behind the scenes of a first time president with a terrific track record in both fundraising and friend raising at his previous stops. Like so many presidents, he was confronted by challenges from the moment he walked on campus. And like so many times, athletics is a part of that. In our conversation, he walks us through a very delicate situation that emerged on campus in spring of 2022. When the Howard University women's lacrosse team arrived on campus and was verbally mistreated by a few members of the student population. It gravitated into a national story and it was clearly a moment that many presidents face in putting espoused values into action. We talk about Presbyterian as a very small division one campus with non-scholarship football trying to manage success and expectations for athletes, coaches, and administrators in the fast-changing world of Division I sports. It's a great conversation for anyone who has ever thought about becoming a small college president. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Karen, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of of your work and uh, glad to participate in it. Uh, so glad to have you. I, I know it's been a, a crazy couple of years, but you bring such passion and energy for higher education, and it's so evident in your role at Presbyterian. And so many folks worry about the future of small privates. What makes you bullish on Presbyterian and other small colleges like it? Well, Karen, there's um, there's a lot of talk and guessing right now about um you know, what the future holds for higher education. There's no doubt that we face a lot of headwinds, Um, rising costs, rampant inflation right now, um, price sensitivity by students and and families, questions about the value of a a college degree, Um, demographic uh, declines. We keep talking about the birth dearth. It's almost upon us. 2026 is right around the corner. Uh, And then just generally, um, you know, rising competition and liberal arts institutions, of course, um, have their own particular challenges. One of them that I think a lot about is our, our relatively small economies of scale. Um, but I, I take heart uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is, um, you know, it's actually a, a Mark Twain quote, uh, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it here, but reports of our death uh, have been greatly exaggerated. So people have been, you know, predicting the demise of liberal arts institutions since I don't know the late 1880s. Um, David Starr Jordan, who is the uh, president of Stanford, uh, is a pretty prominent example. He said that we were going to go uh, the way of the dodo, but for uh, you know the most elite of us. And um, I, you know, I take again, I take heart for a number of reasons. One is that um, the U.S. simply needs more people to get post-secondary degrees. Uh, to meet its workforce needs and to retain its global competitiveness. Um, I take heart because the strength of America's higher education system is in 
it's diversity. There's literally something for everybody and each institution type has its place. And I think that's very much true for small private residential liberal arts colleges like PC. You know, we're actually the right place for a lot of students um, and probably more students than who currently realize it. And what we do, our brand of education, I think matters and it has value. So what we do focuses on, you know, problem solving and making the world a better place. Um, I think we focus on strengthening our democracy. So we don't just teach students what various disciplines say about a particular subject. We actually teach students to think like people from uh, different disciplines and backgrounds. So we teach them empathy and we help them to understand um, how to work with another person's perspective. And, you know, in a society like ours that suffers from an acute deficit of civil discourse, I would argue that we need more classically trained liberal arts graduates running things and shaping uh, opinions. And, you know, the other thing is we're terrible as a society about understanding what the future of work holds. We don't know what the jobs are going to look like, um, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now, even three or four years from now. And so we end up really focusing on producing graduates who are malleable and adaptable and valuable. So what we do matters and has value. And um, I think I think there will be liberal arts colleges that, that close, but the ones that do that are probably gonna be the ones that focus on the two, uh, you know, kind of main response mechanisms that are super unhealthy. They either cut budgets to the bone on one hand, or they um, try to expand and stretch and, and be all things to all people and then end up watering down their um, their identity, uh, leaving them less sure of who they even are in the in the first place. And so uh, my focus at PC has been about really averting um, those 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 response mechanisms, those challenges, and focusing on building, you know, meaningful distinction. We're, we're trying to answer the question, what can people get at PC um, that that they can't get absolutely anywhere else. And, um, and how do we sort of marshal our resources uh, to support those true distinctions so that they really shine? And, um, you know, we've been working uh, diligently on that. We're about to launch our own market position um, related to problem solving and service um, and, and innovation. And, um, and I think it's that kind of thinking that's going to help, uh, our small private colleges to, uh, to thrive, but we are actually programmed to be able to, you know, uh, adapt and strike quickly when we see an opportunity, maybe more so than some other institutions that are public and have to, you know, work with big bureaucracies whenever they want to do something. So just so our listeners can picture Presbyterian College and the campus in their mind, give us a sense of, you know, if we were walking on campus, what would we see? Yeah, I mean, beautiful uh, Southern architecture. Um, you know, we have a kind of a, a narrow campus, but it's a couple miles uh, long and it's absolutely uh, breathtaking in the mornings. It just feels, um, you know, you, you almost get this sort of spiritual sense about the place, but uh, we're in a town of about eight or 9,000 people. Uh, we have about 1,000 students ourselves, both graduate and undergraduate. And we've carved out a little bit of a niche for ourselves in 
um, health-related graduate program. So we're a classic small private residential liberal arts institution situated in rural America with all the charm uh, and wonderful things that come with that. Um, but we've really focused on um, you know, health-related careers and, um, and how that marries with a classic liberal arts training. So essential in this day and age coming out of COVID, hopefully, and also um, just the importance of a good healthcare system that we all know we need. I find that, I find that inspiring. So you mentioned uh, about a thousand students, uh, is that a graduate and undergraduate? Correct, yeah. So I would imagine that athletics plays a crucial role in the recruitment and retention, alumni relations, and other areas of the campus experience. So if you have about a thousand students on campus and you play as, for those who don't know, division one sports, explain to us how this fits into your strategies with peer and aspirant institutions. Yeah, I tend to focus less on who our peers are, who our competitors are, and um, I try to focus on making them irrelevant. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we have a little bit of a different way of thinking about this, but you're right. I mean, you point to an interesting um, set of circumstances, an interesting dynamic, which is that we're pretty small and, uh, and yet we're, we're division one. Um, the division one decision was made back before my arrival in the early 2000s, I, I suspect it was likely hastened by similar moves from Wofford and, and others near us who, who we did deem at that time to really be our, our competitors. And, you know, I, I wasn't there for the discussions back then, but I suspect that um, the decision to go D1 really stemmed from a desire to enhance PC's stature mm -hmm. and its national visibility. Um, all things being equal, we're relatively early in that experiment. So we're just wrapping up our second decade of being a division one institution. So um, although I, I think we've seen some pros and some cons, we'd be kind of hard pressed to simply change strategies at this point um, because we were feeling one way or another. Um, division one status certainly comes with some pros and some cons. Um, but our strategy is to try and make the most of our, our status. So we've, uh, you know, we've enjoyed some superlatives. So for example, we launched the first division one women's wrestling program oh, in wow. the United States. Oh, wow. I didn't know um, that. And we gained some notoriety for, for, for that. Um, you know, I found myself um, kind of working with the National um, Wrestling Coaches Association, trying to encourage other institutions to follow suit. Um, you know, we're looking for other ways to kind of uh, construct creative exhibitions um, that will be, you know, kind of big visibility plays for, uh, for PC and for the other institution. You know, corporate sponsorships and ticket sales tend to be more lucrative in Division I uh, than maybe I've seen at, you know, in my own history with Division Three institutions. Uh, and then we've tried to do some unique and interesting things. So, uh, one example that, that comes to mind is, uh, you know, we hired um, as our football coach, um, Kevin Kelly, who, who doesn't tend to punt and, and who tends to, you know, onside kick it and go for two points after touchdowns quite frequently. And, you know, that ended up generating, uh, we estimate, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in media exposure and visibility. Now, he didn't end up remaining here, um, but that is an example, I think, of the kind of big thinking uh, that can help an institution like PC make the most of its Division I status. 
It's a great point. And, and you, you mentioned to me earlier before we got on the, on the podcast about the kinds of conversations you have with your athletic staff about, about, you know, uh, big fish and a small fish in a very big pond. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think um, there's, it's a, it's a complex environment right now. Um, you know, with all the uh, discussion in the NCAA around reorganization, you know, places like PC, I suspect other places are all kind of going, where do I fit um, in the landscape? And, um, you know, my, my advice to our athletic staff, um, whether or not we're facing this, um, you know, this uncertainty, this complexity, uh, my advice to our athletic staff is similar to what they tell our student athletes in game and practice situations, you know, work on the things that are within your control. Don't spend time lamenting what could be or what might be because those things might not even come to pass in the first place. You know, focus on becoming the best version of yourself and put in the hard work that'll get you where you want to go. And, um, you know, I think the president has a big role in uh, propelling athletics. So philanthropy is a, is a big thing. You know, we just did an $8 million uh, facilities uh, fundraising upgrade, um, uh, or we just did the fundraising project for that upgrade. You know, working on the endowment uh, is, a, is another big thing. Um, work, working on making sure that we have the right enrollment balances in every single athletic program so that we're maximizing our revenue and sort of reducing the pressure uh, that we feel on the budget uh, with with Division One athletics, um, you know, I find myself getting involved pretty regularly with uh, recruitment efforts. So I meet with a lot of students and families directly. That's a that's a big distinction PC would offer relative to, uh, you know, that's probably not happening at Georgia Tech, <laughs> um, you know, just as as an example. Um, you know, so there, there are a lot of things that we can do um, like that, like driving corporate partnerships and ticket sales. Um, and, and really just working on, you know, reputational pieces that, uh, that we can do to make the most of, of division one, but, but it all comes down to, um, work on the things that are within the realm of your control. Right. Right. Good advice for so many of us. So many of us this spring, you had a really difficult situation happen on campus involving the Howard university women's lacrosse teams visit to your campus to play a game. Walk us through what happened and what the process was for making some very difficult decisions and the outcome. Yeah, sure. Well, um, in February, we had um, a group of students gather on on a hillside outside of our stadium uh, about an hour before the women's lacrosse game. And um, what we ended up learning was that they hurled racist and some of them hurled racist and misogynistic insults at uh, the visiting players from Howard University's lacrosse team. And um, th I mean, this was a devastating um, thing to, uh, to have happen, uh, obviously for, uh, for our, our friends from Howard University and, and all of their families, devastating for them, but devastating for our community. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many uh, students, faculty and staff uh, and alumni reached out to me to express outrage uh, over what happened and to say that, uh, you know, that, that this doesn't represent um, PC. And, um, and it doesn't represent PC, um, but what we have to come to terms with is that it happened at PC. And so there was something um, in, in our environment that 
enabled that to happen. And so that's a tough truth, yeah. uh, but that's something that we had to, to grapple with. And so a lot of institutions in circumstances like this, the reflex will be to try to compress everything and to you know try to sweep it under the rug and, and ride out the storm. And um, we did not want that to be the way that we handled this. We, you know, we brought in an outside investigator to, to try and bring up the truth uh, and try to bring all the, you know, the, the tough stuff uh, to the surface. And then we said, we're gonna deal very harshly um, with and, and hold those to account. Um, anyone who had responsibility for uh, what took place. And ultimately, we did not want this incident to be what defines us. You know, I believe firmly that um, it's not it's not a, an institution's ability to avoid um, difficulty or dodge hardship that is the measure of the place. Uh, the measure of the place is best taken in how it responds to things like that. So we didn't want to be known as the place where this bad thing happened. We wanted to be known as the place that was willing and brave enough and committed enough to deal with that kind of incident happening. And hopefully um, history will show that that's what we did. So I guess give us a, a sense, you sent a letter out to the community. I think it was just the campus community but it got picked up by some of the media outlets and things like that. Tell us about the contents of that letter and then also what the response was from the community. Yeah, I mean, I think on both sides of this, so we released a statement, um, you know, on the front end, on the back end, and a couple of times during, um, you know, the, the process just as, a, as an update. And really what we were trying to do is in, in very unequivocal language, condemn racism and misogynism and, and all, all and hatred, all forms thereof, um, and make it clear that we were not going to uh, conflate strong expressions of, um, uh, you know, uh, belief in doing the right thing with actually doing the right thing. Um, so we, you know, we, we said what we thought was important to say, we, we, we led with our values. And then we talked about the process that we were going to use, we brought in somebody independent of PC so that there wasn't, you know, hopefully even the appearance uh, that we were trying to sweep anything under the rug, and then we dealt forcefully with it. And so then on the other end of this, um, you know, we essentially repeated that. We we said, um, you know, we condemn all forms of racism, uh, misogyny, and 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 hatred, and uh, but we don't confuse um, heartfelt sentiments with action and actual accountability. And um, and so we showed, um, you know, obviously FERPA uh, kind of. Um, prevents you from from disclosing all the details. Um, but but you know, we tried to give the sense that um, you know there were different levels of uh, of activity by students, different levels of involvement, and we dealt with each of those um, separately and independently. And by the way, we also found that a heck of a lot of students and faculty and staff tried to do the right thing um, in the the course of those events. And so um, we also tried to make that um, that known as well. I also recall reading that a couple of uh, students got kicked out and you just said, we don't want you back to campus anymore. So I think even that makes a pretty bold statement about we're going to re really reinforce our values. And if you can't live up to the values that we set, then maybe you're not a good fit here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I do have to ask you, because I'm a former coach, so I have to ask, how did your team respond, uh, your lacrosse team respond when this first happened? Uh, I uh, And perhaps you heard about what happened at Delaware State Women's Lacrosse when they came up 95 and were stopped, I think it was in Georgia, uh, and their bus was searched and they felt it was, uh, they felt it was racial profiling, but we don't know that that's true. But it, it affects you. When things like that happen, it's, it's hard it's hard to feel good about it on either side, whether you're the team that's being attacked as Howard was, or your, your team uh, could be standing there going, feeling almost helpless. How did, how did they respond? You know, I, I both watched from afar and I had an opportunity to address the team relatively um, uh, soon after uh, those events transpired. And, you know, my, my general sense is that um, they were aghast and embarrassed um, I also think that they felt, you know, sort of personally responsible because some of the people on that hillside were there to, uh, to support them and were friends that, that, you know, they had done a great job at, at getting people to come to the game and be supportive. I don't think that they knew that that was going to, uh, to happen, but um, we're a small tight knit community. And so when someone does that, you, you tend to know who they are. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that, um, that adds, adds a dimension of pain and personalizes it in a way uh, that might not necessarily be the case than if it happened at a, at a big place where you yeah. don't know everybody the same way. Um, so I, I, think it was, um, I, I think it was an opportunity for them to sort of, um, you know, I, I, I imagine they were scrutinizing themselves, their own connections, who they associate with uh, and all of that. Um, they were asking the tough questions that, um, you know, that the institution was asking. And, um, and I'm sure that they'll be, you know, even um, stronger human beings because of that. But um, you know, that team, that team is is filled with um, a lot of terrific people, and um, and I know that this is this is not what they wanted um, for their friends from Howard University, yeah. and uh, and they were part of the charge um, led by our students. Our, our students put on a you know a unity march on campus mm -hmm. to express support for uh, women and, and athletes of color. And, uh, and, and, you know, some of those members of the lacrosse team uh, at PC were, were some of the most prominent uh, members in that march. Mm, that's great. That's great. I can relate to this because uh, early in my coaching career, we traveled to a, a small school in Virginia and arrived there clearly uh, with a bunch of uh, young men who'd been drinking most of the afternoon. And they proceeded to yell every uh, word, misogynistic word they possibly could at us, thinking in their minds that they were supporting the home team. And it was very frustrating to have to listen to that. And that's one of the, the values of having a, a neutral administrator on site to try to patrol the crowd because the coaches can't do it. The officials can't do it. The teams are playing. So somebody's got to be there. So just an important uh, tidbit for, for presidents to pay attention to. That's why you have an administrator on site. Mm. Matt, I know that you are a exceptional fundraiser and I know you are a policy wonk. So how do you use those skill sets to drive the agenda for the next few years at Presbyterian? Well, thanks for that compliment. I'm gonna keep you on speed dial whenever I get <laughs> uh, you know, a, a boost, but um, no, thank you. I, you know, I, I think um, my, my orientation um, toward the role is, is heavily influenced by my, my advancement background. You know, I think good advancement officers tend to be optimists. 
they tend to understand that big ideas and a, a clear vision tend to galvanize their base and attract transformative gifts and um, encourage students to attend uh, the institution. They, you know, advancement officers tend to, uh, the really good ones, they tend to prioritize listening and serving over selling and talking. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do, I, I purposefully uh, try to do a lot of listening and serving as opposed to just selling and talking. Um, advancement people tend to kind of gravitate towards symbiosis and they have kind of just a, an intrinsic knack for building partnerships. They see an opportunity for mutual benefit in, in a lot of relationships. Um, and they tend to, you know, just realize that effective partnerships are um, a lot greater than just the sum of their parts. Um, and, you know, I remember talking to the presidential search committee about um, why they chose me so that you, you know, you know to do more of those things and, um, and, to, and to really let those qualities shine. And, um, and, and what they said to me was, you know, look, you're, the conviction that you had that uh, we would rally from some of these difficulties and prevail uh, was attractive. I think very much a, um, you know, a, a result of my background. Um, they said the, you know, kind of bold, partnership-oriented, big idea-fueled brand of adaptation that I was preaching um, seemed like what uh, what they needed. And then, um, you know, honestly, if you have a background in policy and a background in advancement like I do, um, you tend to um, understand the importance of diplomacy. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I found that actually the presidency of a college um, is, is probably 80 or 90 percent diplomacy yeah. um, and, and problem solving and partnership development. But I'd really, you know, I'd, I'd kind of focus the job down to diplomacy, problem solving, and partnership development. And those are certainly skills that, um, you know, uh, a degree in public policy, a, a stint on Capitol Hill, uh, time in politics, working in the nonprofit sector, and, uh, and trying to, uh, you know, fight the challenges and, and, and create a bad, you know, create, create a great situation out of difficult circumstances. You know, those are all things that, uh, that I've been, um, fortunate enough to have a lot of experience in, and they tend to be a very strong lens uh, for me in my role as president of PC. You know, you're one of the, the emerging group of young presidents that's coming up through the, the higher education landscape. If, you, if we have a listener who's thinking about, do I wanna be a college president? Can you give them some encouragement? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's a challenging job, but, um, but I've actually wanted this job since I was 20 years old. Um, wow. It's funny, a lot of people will, um, you know, one of my mentors at uh, Alma College is fond of saying I'm an English professor by trade and a college professor by, or a college president by accident. <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that's usually good for a laugh, but, um, but, it, but it does show that, you know, a lot of people come to the presidency because of just career evolution. I actually had somebody, um, you know, kind of put their arm around me at the age of 20 and say, I think this could be you. And, uh, and I found myself, you know, looking for opportunities to do that in some of our, our students. I had a, a conversation like that yesterday, hmm. um, actually. You know, um, we are on the front lines of helping people at some of their most formative and vulnerable years. And um, our society um, faces some major deficits, deficits that are answered um, through good, well-delivered, well-timed, 
carefully orchestrated higher education experiences. Yeah. And um, it is a, a, a great privilege uh, to be able to lead an institution that has such an impact, uh, a positive impact uh, on, on the lives of young people. And so although the job is filled with a lot of uh, challenges, um, when something goes right, when, um, when you get a big gift, when you um, see a class come in, when you see graduation and experience it, uh, there's nothing like it. And you look for those moments uh, to really affirm that, that you've made the right uh, vocational decision for your own career. Matt, that's tremendous. I can't thank you enough. We, we've been trying to get this podcast together now for a, more than a few months and we finally got it. But I think that the folks who listen to this podcast, especially my students uh, at Penn, uh, will get a lot out of this. And I'm hoping we will find a few more presidents in the mix as well. So thank you for that. Karen, thank you. I'm a big fan of, of yours and uh, enjoyed uh, studying under you at Penn. Uh, and I'm, you know, just really um, excited for the work that you're doing and, and grateful for a, a chance to uh, participate in one of these great podcasts. Thanks, Matt.